This week on Afterwards, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project and author of the new book, The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story. She looks at American history, slavery, and its legacy in present-day America. You know, we call this a new origin story, not the new origin story. And I think... An alternative. Yes, I think that in a multiracial country... We have to have many points of origin. She's interviewed by New York University history professor and author Stephen Hahn. More after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's my great pleasure to welcome Nicole Hannah-Jones, Professor Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, to Afterwards to discuss the book version of the path-breaking, eye-opening, inspiring, challenging, for some exasperating, always controversial, and multi-prize-winning uh, 1619 project, which you organized and brought to fruition at the New York Times in August 2019, and which is due out uh, virtually any day, I think within a week or so. November 16th. November 16th. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. Um, let's begin by backpedaling a little bit. Um, you offer readers in the preface of the book... Uh, really an excellent overview of both the genesis of the 1619 Project and what the book um, hopes to accomplish. But I wondered if we might start by discussing your expectations of the responses um, as you moved toward publication two years ago, and then what has surprised you most (laughs) about them. I'm sure you've been asked this many times, but uh, I also think our viewers would be interested in hearing. Sure. Well, one, thanks for being in conversation with me. Um, It's been two and a half years since the first project published, and I'm just excited for the book version to finally make its way into the world. Um, I think, you know, what what has surprised me most about um, what has happened since the original project was both um, the amount of excitement um, the, the number of people who really um, embraced the project. You know, this is a project on slavery. It is a project on one of the, if not the most difficult um, areas of American history and uh, one of the most divisive uh, areas of American life. Clearly, we can see what's happening in our country right now and, and understand how challenging uh, this is. And we were making you know, provocative arguments that slavery is um, a foundational American institution 
and that we didn't banish its legacy in 1865 or 1965, that we're still struggling with that legacy. So I had no idea if anyone would honestly read it. Um, Did you worry that it was just going to fall flat and that was going to be the end? I did. I mean, I, I felt that I believed strongly that the work we did was important and that the essays were were beautifully argued that uh, they would challenge us and really um as you know the the project is based on decades of scholarship but as you also know uh the scholarship that's done in the field doesn't always permeate uh, the membrane uh into <laughs> popular right. understanding exactly. so um I just wasn't sure how it would land or if people would care. And we live in a, a society where there's so much information happening all the time that you can do a powerful work of journalism and in a day or two it disappears. So I just had no idea. Right. Um, so I was completely surprised by um, really the thirst for uh, this project and the desire to engage with it. And then, of course... How um, fast it sold out. Yes. Um, the night before we published, I, I couldn't sleep. I was just like, I have gotten the New York Times to give all of these resources to this massive project, and what if it publishes and lands with a thud and disappears in a day or two and no one cares? Um, though I also find in life, generally, having low expectations is good. Uh, then you're... Um, Pleasantly surprised. <laughs> exactly. You can be surprised, but hopefully not, not too disappointed. Um, but, so <laughs> what surprised me was, uh, one, just the the massive audience for the project, that um, the project sold out all over the country. It sold out of multiple releases. Um, there were lines of people trying to get copies of it. Um, the, the word six, year 1619 really entered the national lexicon. I just couldn't have imagined that a project on slavery would um, would, would reach as widely as it did. And one I, that begins there. Yes, as exactly. As opposed to other iconic dates. That's right. <clears throat> and, you know, my, my, I come from a very working class, uh, blue-collar uh, town and family, and I've been a journalist for 20 years, and this was the piece that, that actually reached my family. Um, so that was very surprising. And then, of course, more surprising than that has been uh, the level of pushback and the duration of pushback and really the ugliness of some of the pushback. I certainly expected critique. Uh, I certainly expected that um, there would be people who didn't like our arguments that slavery is a primary uh, and foundational American institution and so much of American life uh, still impacted by that. Um, but I didn't expect that two years later multiple states would be trying to legislate against the project, that, right. uh, you know, the president of the United States would have been castigating the project, um, that it would become caught up in, in politics the way that it has, mm -hmm. and that I would somehow uh, become a symbol mm -hmm. um, and not just a, a journalist uh, mm -hmm. who did reporting. So mm -hmm. all of that has been... Really surprising. Were you especially surprised by the academic historians? Not that many of them, but some of them who, you know, pushed back and pushed back in kind of a demeaning way, I thought. Yeah, so I, I wasn't surprised that academic historians pushed back. I mean, I, I'm not a historian, but I, I study history and I study the field. And I know that it is very common for historians to disagree with each other and to disagree with each other publicly and to say, you know, that's not my interpretation, or I think you argue that, you know, maybe you gave too much uh, 
emphasis on this and I wouldn't have, that is normal. But what did surprise me was that there wasn't just an effort to say, uh, we don't agree with this. Uh, but there was really effort to discredit the project, to argue in an open letter that this project was wrong and dangerous and wrong. children shouldn't be taught it. And that was very surprising to me. Uh, I think it was uh, beyond uh, the norms of the field, frankly. And um, journalists often write about historical events. Right. Um, but I haven't seen the type of scrutiny or effort to really discredit uh, even when journalists sometimes don't get things right. right. So, uh, I, yeah, that, that was not expected. But critique from scholars was certainly expected. Sure, right, exactly. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, um, struck me about the responses was how much they were focused on you <laughs> and the introductory, uh, the big essay. Yes. And uh, how little attention actually was devoted to the many other essays, not to mention the poetic and prose um, form contributions, uh, which were really uh, important and that sort of uh, dealt analytically as well as artistically with the uh, many ways in which slavery and its legacies of racism and repression have given shape to our society. So I'm, I'm wondering why you think that was, because especially when you go to the book and are reminded of the many essays that cover really big uh, subjects. Um, you wouldn't know uh, from some of, I mean, obviously the um, uh, conservative critique kind of lumped everything together, but um, mostly it was about your essay, about what you didn't do, about what you got wrong, and so on, and not much about um, the other things to suggest the way in which uh, that experience and that history is really embedded in the world in which we live. Absolutely. If, if you, if you looked, look at the, the critiques of the project, even the laws against the project, um, you would think that I wrote the entire project and the entire project was a single essay, which is my essay on democracy. Right. You wouldn't think that actually historians also wrote essays for no, the projects, right? Um, and so I clearly have spent a lot of time over the past two years trying to understand mm -hmm. that. And I would think it's a couple of things. One, um, my essay is on democracy. Um, the two most critiqued essays in the project are the two essays that, that really speak to the pillars of American uh, identity when it comes to this uh, notion of exceptionalism. And that's the essay on democracy and capitalism. So I, I think because we, we place such a heavy emphasis on that as us being an exceptional nation, these two things, that the two essays that really critique the standard narratives about that are the two that have come the most under attack. Right. And I also think um, the packaging of the person who made the essay, uh, argument um, has made a difference, too, that mm -hmm. people didn't think I was deferential enough, I'm, I'm not a historian, um, I didn't back down, and I think all of that elicited a great deal of, of anger mm -hmm. um, as well. But, you know, who knows? I guess you'd have to, to ask those folks to, to get their motivations. But mm -hmm. um, I, when I've looked at some of the criticism, it's been very personal. It yeah. hasn't been just about the factual arguments or interpretations. Um, and Who are you to... Yes. Really, credentialing you know. as well. Right. Um, you know, she's not a historian. Uh, no one asked us if, if they could do this or consulted us on the project. And, you know, as someone who has 
studied history. I started studying history in high school on my own. I, I have undergraduate degrees in history. Everyone who knows me knows that's all I read. Um, I always thought that historians produce history so that regular lay people could understand their world and use that history. Um, but in this case, it, it seemed to anger yeah. people. And, and I imagine yeah. it's because um, when you write something like this for the New York Times, it becomes part of a popular history. Right. And um, some people didn't think well, perhaps I should they, be They reacted as that. if they kind of felt personally attacked by you. And I presume that that may be part of the um, nature of the response. You know, one of the things, uh, for those of us who, who teach history, I mean, we try to um, show undergraduates how history is a constant process of discovery and interpretation. You don't need a PhD to do that. So in some ways, um, it's kind of counterproductive to suggest that there's this person who's a quote-unquote interloper who's coming into the field and you know, challenging sort of uh, many accepted uh, wisdoms, which are not necessarily accepted, they're contested. Um, I think viewers will be very interested to know that the book um, is, uh, includes quite a number of new uh, essays and some poetry and uh, other fiction writing compared to the uh, Times version. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about uh, why you decided to expand it, and um, how you chose both the subjects and the writers. Yeah, the beauty of um, producing a project and then being able to take two years uh, to think about uh, what were the ways it could have been improved, um, what, what do we wish had been stronger, what, what couldn't we put in because a magazine has a much more limited space than a book. Uh, and I'm, I'm really proud of, of what we've done. Uh, one, we did listen to good faith criticism. So for those who paid attention to the debates around it, um, we did more research, consulted more historians. Every essay was peer reviewed by um, historians who has, have specific academic knowledge of the, the areas that we're talking about. So all of the essays have been expanded. For instance, my essay on democracy is probably yes. twice as long mm -hmm. as what it ran before. Um, and it was a, rarely in journalism do you get a chance to do something big and then not do it over, but really expand it and work mm -hmm. on it. And, and, um, it was so exciting to me to, to read more and to think more and to really sharpen the arguments. And so if you read the original project, every essay that you read in there is vastly different than the original. And I think people will really enjoy that. And then there were holes that we always knew existed, yeah. but because of either space or we didn't quite know how to uh, tell the story in a way that fit with the argument of the project, we didn't put them in there. So you'll, you'll find now an essay that talks about the, the diaspora. Um, there's an essay by Michelle Alexander mm -hmm. and her sister, who mm -hmm. is a historian, Leslie Alexander, on the Haitian Revolution yes. and how that impacted mm -hmm. American ideas of race and fear. Um, there's a new essay by Taya Miles, which mm -hmm. gets to what I think was probably the biggest gap in the original project was not dealing with settler colonialism. Uh, and now we have an essay by Harvard historian that, that talks about slavery 
uh, and indigenous people and how, of course, you can't expand she, slavery she without land. An essay in the... Um, Very short. Very short. Yeah, yeah, she did some some short pieces for right. us in the original project, <clears throat> yes, I re- uh, but unleashed to do something mm-hmm. large. Yes. Uh, hers is actually one of my mm-hmm. favorite mm-hmm. essays, and I think one that is going to surprise mm-hmm. uh, a lot of readers. Um, so we have, you know, an essay by Carol Anderson mm-hmm. about the Second Amendment and sure. slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, an essay by Anthea Butler that talks about religion. So um, we're able to really expand the project out to a much broader um, areas of American life mm-hmm. in a way that I think is really uh, beautiful. It's difficult mm-hmm. reading, um, right. but also really inspiring. And then we have more than doubled the fiction and yes. um Poetry in the book, and uh, they're beautiful. Which I must say, such are a, fabulous. They, they I thought are. it was fabulous. Actually, I thought one of the things that was is unfortunate about the responses that focus on only a, a certain number of things is that that tends to be entirely yes. overlooked. Not only that, but other artistic representations, which I think really help us um, understand at a, a new kind of depth. Um, what this uh, means, and I hope that uh, in the book version, because I think you put it together in a really interesting way, it's much more clearly chronological, and the poetry and the fiction pieces or the other short-form essays, you know, are very connected to the particular moment that uh, that you have over the course of the book and to the larger, you know, essays that work there, and I just found them incredibly powerful. Oh, I'm so glad you you said that because they were always a big part of the project. But as you said, uh, a very little talked about and overlooked aspect of the project. And and what's beautiful about it is these are these are not uh, the greatest Black American writers. These are amongst the greatest American writers. Exactly. Period. And the timeline uh, aspect of it is, you know, so much of. Uh, the history of black people prior to 1865 is not written by black people because black people were uh, forcibly made illiterate. And so we don't have the same amount of documentary evidence of journals and people writing letters to each other and people being able to talk about uh, these moments in in black American history from their perspective. But we keep uncovering more. We do. Which is part of the discovery process that, you know, uh, 1619 kind of opens up. It says, look, we need to start at a much earlier point than we tend to do. And therefore, you know, as a historian, I always know that you get surprised constantly uh, by what you're uh, able to find. I know um, I was very happy to see a, um, a contribution by Greg Pardlow, who yes. was uh, my uh, colleague at the Coleman Center last year, uh, and yes. whose poetry I just absolutely love. And so I, I think this um, readers will be very, I hope, you know, very appreciative. Um, one of the things um, that I've thought a lot about uh, in reading um, the book version is a point you make in one of your essays. I think this the last one, uh, on origin stories. And, um, you know, you know that um, origin stories, which wherever you can find them, and all nations have them, Mm -hmm. all societies have them, all those who regard themselves as uh, people have them, um, you know, become mythologized. And, um, you know, they serve a variety of political and cultural purposes. And... uh, they're meant to deepen a sense of both belonging and non-belonging. So one of the questions I kept wondering about was, if 
and the alternative origin story, because that's how you present it, that you propose run some of the same risk, yes. uh, both now and in the future, of you know myth-making and creative remembering and uh, uh, disremembering, distorting as well as revealing, in a, in a sense being no truer than the others. And so I guess... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I, I wanted to ask you about a couple of sort of possibilities. You, you know, the 1619, as, to the extent that it, we, it would, could be embraced as an origin story, um, you know, obviously as it, it gets sort of mythologized and reinterpreted, you know, becomes kind of more and more dreadful. Um, and I wondered if, on the one hand, whether it makes somewhat more sense to focus on a potentially different origin story, say, uh, although they could be many, say, emancipation and reconstruction, which, coming off your essay on democracy as well as Martha Jones's yes. on citizenship, really demonstrates the incredible difference that um, uh, African Americans made to the entire country, to everything we, we at least claim to value. These days, I'm not even sure how much we value right. them, but we claim to value that are the sort of the pinnacle of what the United States is meant to represent so that you have, you know, what Foner calls a second founding or yes. a rebirth of a nation or however. You, so that's one possibility. But the other is whether we challenge the whole idea of origins and that, you know, that, that they're necessarily so deeply distorting uh, of a nation's or society's birth or founding that it's almost impossible to come to terms with what they conceal. And so instead of searching for a new origins, you kind of say, this is one of our problems, that we, you know, origins, stories. Anyway, I, I, so I've I, I been mulling this yeah. for numbers of days because I think it's a... You know, great insight on your part, but it raises all sorts of interesting questions. Yeah, I, I think that those are all provocative questions that we should be debating in classrooms and in colleges. Um, you know, we call this a new origin story, not the new origin oh, right. story. And I An think alternative. Yes, not I think that yeah. in a multiracial country, we have to have many points of origin. Mm -hmm. And you could certainly have um, a similar project looking at indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And I actually hope that there is something like that. And, and what would it be, you know, how would we think differently about our country if we look at it through that lens? Uh, so I think that if we are going to engage in origin stories, and, and the question is, should we? Um, maybe, maybe not. I think there's a usefulness to them. Um, and I also think it's impossible to not have them. I, I think culturally, as human beings... You know, we almost always do. We so. always do. And you, you could academically argue that we shouldn't, but I don't think we'll ever not mm -hmm. um, have the stories mm -hmm. that we tell ourselves right. about who we are as a people, right. or a country, or a nation. Um, but I think that we do have to say there could never be one. And this idea of a, a single unifying narrative in a country like the United States, I think, is probably impossible. Um, so 
why can't we teach multiple mm -hmm. versions of origins and say that it is it is the bringing the chorus of these origin stories that tells us who we are as Americans? Um, part of what you know the 1619 project has gotten caught up in is this belief that this project was intended to replace uh, something, but it wasn't. Uh, what the project is intended to do is to add. Mm -hmm. Add to the history that we have, add a different perspective, and hopefully challenge our society, school children, to question, to be mm -hmm. more skeptical, and to say, how many other perspectives are we not getting? How would mm -hmm. we better understand this country if we were hearing it from the lens of people who experienced it in different ways? Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't think I would get rid of origin stories. I mean, we even have them in our families, oh, and absolutely. I think that they—I I think that they can have a positive purpose. I just think uh, too often our origin stories have been manipulated to a degree that they just exclude, um, that they they uh, leave too many of us out, um, and that they're less honest because they're trying to tell a single version of who we are. And I think more honest is uh, telling a much larger. Mm -hmm more inclusive version because that's just more more true so do you think that that's part of the pushback of fear uh of being excluded or fear of being diminished on the part of people who expected to be favored and privileged absolutely even if they don't even no, if they don't call it that. yes and i think oftentimes they don't even it's not even a, a intentional way of thinking i mean i talk about this also in my preface that there is of course history is uh, what happened on what date and who did it. And then history is what we've decided to remember about what happened and how we've chosen to interpret what happened. And that so often history is about the production of power. So, you know, this, this fear that 1619 was replacing 1776 was not about historical fact. That was a fear about, are we losing something? Right. Are you saying that we can't consider these men to be great are you saying we can't consider our country to be exceptional because 1776 is about exceptionality, 1619 is about something else? Um, so these aren't arguments about facts of history. These are arguments about what is the utility of history and who gets to decide how we think about ourselves as Americans. And for the vast history of this country, only one group has been able to shape that narrative. Uh -huh. And then here comes this woman at the New York Times. Um, who is challenging that narrative in a way that um, often historical texts don't. And, and, and I, I, I need to be careful that historians are not taking that as demeaning the profession, because I could do none of what I do without the work of historians. Right. I mean, I think but you make that clear, especially hard. in the book. Yes, right. It's, it's hard um, for an historical text, I think, to really uh, permeate society in that way. And this is where... Um, I think the work of historians and the work of journalists can be aligned, which is we can take that work and translate it uh, to a mass audience. Right. Um, history is sexy. I love history. Uh, but Not I don't think... people think it's right. sexy, but... And, and that's, that's, to me, part of what's been troubling about some of the pushback, uh, particularly from historians, yeah, because right. to me, if you want people to understand why history matters, mm -hmm. uh, if you want... Uh, people to study the field of history and to use the history that you're making, um, then you can't be so exclusive with how that history is ultimately used. Um, to have school children telling me I wasn't interested in history, 
But because this project is about the present, it helps me understand, oh, this is why I need to know about what right. happened in 1865, uh -huh. because this is how it's shaping the society that I live in now. And I think that is the power of what we try to do, but also where the opposition comes from. Well, I think one of the points you make in the preface, too, is that if we ever had any question about whether history was important, <laughs> yes. it's pretty obvious that, you know, whoever owns the past owns the present. That's I right. mean, there's a lot of, you know, truth to that, and that history telling is a form of wielding power, as you suggested, and therefore, you know, it's very contentious. Um, you know, I think another point that, you know, you make in your d democracy essay, too, is not to denigrate the founding ideals, but to demonstrate that, you know, African Americans were among those who cared the deepest yes. about them, who fought the hardest, who put the most on the line and had the most expansive sense of what democracy might, in fact, mean was the least exclusionary. I mean, I think you make some reference, too, during Reconstruction, you know, in the um, uh, radical constitutional conventions in the South, you know, African-American delegates were the least likely to want to punish former That's Confederates. Right. It was the white unionists who wanted to punish them. So there was a sort of a remarkable sense of inclusion and forgiveness, maybe mistakenly, but nonetheless... You know, it seems to me that you take the ideals and you demonstrate that it has fired the imaginations and the struggles of people who were not included, but who nonetheless were the ones who took it really, really seriously. So, you know, it seems to me that that's one of the things that excites, you know, students and others who read this and recognize that, you know, this is, it's, it's not necessarily an alternative, but it's a deeper history uh, of how the country came into being and who we are to thank you know, for it. Um, one of the things that it, it's really uh, has uh, impressed me right from the beginning was the extremely ambitious chronological arc of, of the project. I mean, 400 years uh, is a long time for historians uh, who tend to yes. lop off, you know, um, relatively limited um, uh, time periods. Um, and readers certainly... Uh, learn how deeply embedded, you know, slavery and its legacies are. Uh, but I wonder if one of the potential dangers is that we end up, or we can end up, with something of a history without history, which is to say that nothing really changes, that, you know, we, there are struggles uh, for change, and, but, and, but whoever wages them and however heroic... Uh, they might be. They don't really count for much in the end. I'm, I, I, you know, one of the, the things I thought about, too, you know, Isabel Wilkerson's, um, uh, you know, uh, recent very powerful book, Cast, uh, you know, strikes me as an extreme version of this. I mean, there are, you know, a, 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 analogies that are kind of a historical, and all we're left with at the end is sort of the scent, this hope for some, you know, kind of imagined change of heart. Mm -hmm for which there's no basis in the past. And so I, I guess, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that the 1619 Project airs to that extent. But there is kind of a sense in many of the essays, in some ways excluding yours and Martha Jones and a couple of others, where it's sort of, you know, you, it, what, what's explained is how problematic things are, how deeply... Um, the uh, challenges we now face are rooted in the past. And you kind of come away and think, I don't know. I mean, 
you know, where are we? What, what sort of, what is history teaching us except not much happens? You know, we're sort of in the same place. Um, I mean, I don't think that this is a hopeful book. Um, and I don't know that the work of history should try to be hopeful or, you know, optimistic or pessimistic. Um, but I, I guess what, when I think about this book, I think that you, if we want to be hopeful that we can change our society and make progress, it has to be built on honesty about what happened. Mm -hmm. And um, we have to acknowledge that the past does shape where we are in our society. So the second to the last essay in the book, of course, is Ibram Kendi on progress. Uh, yes. I, I think it's a brilliant, yeah, essay. It is a brilliant essay. And it really speaks to um, the lack of urgency that these kind of comforting narratives give us, which is, yes, of course there's progress. My, you know, my dad was born on a sharecropping farm. I, I was not. Um, but if you look at the black-white wealth gap, it's identical to when my dad was born on a sharecropping farm. Uh, when you look at incarceration rates, they have increased. Like, there's so many measures. I, I think it would be um, counterfactual to say there has not been progress. But I think the argument is also, should we be satisfied with progress in a, in a land that we have been in for 400 years? Mm -hmm. when, when do we not need to mark progress? Um, what is hopeful to me about the book, though, is, and I ultimately think my ending essay on justice offers us hope. I want to talk about that. Because it says, mm -hmm. okay, no, you've gone you through this you book. you offer a direction. You understand, what we need to do. right, what has happened. You understand why. Mm -hmm. um, you understand that the inequality we see is not natural. It's not innate. It was constructed. So now you understand we can actually do something about it if we choose. Hopelessness is to say there's nothing that can be right. done. Um, but I think the sense of hopelessness comes from the belief that we probably won't do what is required. Um, but that we can, we can become uh, a, a far more equal country that really does live up to those majestic ideas of our founding if we choose it. If we choose it. But we're not in a particularly hopeful moment in our right. country right I now. Mean, so uh, you know, knows? I think, um, you know, hope and optimism are different things. Yeah. And I think there's not a lot of cause for optimism, but hope is something else that can be embedded yes. in the history as it's, um, you know, uh, 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 experienced, but um, you know, I, I, again, there's sort of one of the things that worries me, and I know in teaching um, in university and talking to other audiences is that there has kind of been the sense that you know there was the experience of enslavement, and of course, then it's followed by this awful experience of repression, of Jim Crow, of you know, sort of om almost unrestrained violence. Uh, against uh, formerly enslaved people. And so that the line between slavery and everything else kind of evaporates. And that's what I mean about, you know, um, um, Martin Luther King used to say that C. Van Woodward's Strange Career of Jim Crow was the Bible of the Civil Rights Movement. What, what he meant was that, you know, whether you agree with the analysis or not, he was basically saying Jim Crow and racism has a history. Yes. And if it has a history, it can be... Uh, defeated, yeah. right? And so, so that, that's what I, I, I kind of mean about history without history is that I read a lot of things these days which written by people who are powerfully committed 
to a more just society, to um, defeating the burdens of race and enslavement of the past. But sometimes in the way of doing it and, you know, demonstrating again and again and again that, you know, things, some things have changed, but a lot of things remain the same. You kind of end up in a position of how and how do we get, you know, out of here? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that is something that we struggle with as a society is how do we? And, and um, I'm not sure that any of us have the answers. Right. And that's what's so difficult because the laws have changed. Um, the civil rights movement understood hearts and minds matter, but the laws matter more. But now the laws have changed. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, Right. I, I don't know. And, and I think that's what's so perplexing well, I think, about... I think the idea also of progress is that there is this kind of sense, and I think Kendi, you know, kind of puts his finger on it. it there's kind of this naive sense uh, in American historical writing and thinking that somehow or other it's a redemption story, yes. right? We've sinned in the past, but somehow or other we have, rede- you know, we've recognized our sins and we've committed ourselves. And so... You know, uh, Barack Obama gets elected president. Now we're in a post-racial society. It was amazing how quickly both people grabbed onto that and how quickly it was demonstrated to be, you know, palpably um, uh, false. So that, you know, there is, I I think the the need to interrogate this, that form of optimism as opposed to hope, which is that things just do get better. You just have to be patient, which is, I think, some of the pushback because 1619 Project and others is about urgency. Yes. Is that, you know, and, and the, you know, wait and see, be patient, you can't do everything. I mean, this has always been, you know, the reaction on the part of, of people who are in power. So uh, one of the things I wanted to ask, because you raised the issue about multiple origin stories, is that, you know, clearly one of the pushbacks against 1619 was, you know, this feeling that there was too much of a tunnel vision. It was all about slavery, it was about racism, it was about African-descended people, what about, you know, Native people, what about other people of color, what about ethnic working-class poor people? Uh, I know that you don't, uh, your view is not that that doesn't matter. And you had an objective, and you had limited space. You know, you dealt with 400 years, and you can't write about everything, because, needless to say, there's an enormous amount to write about. So in addition to the the implicit suggestion that there can be multiple origin stories, um, I think you're interested in kind of constructing a new narrative, right? So how does the narrative that you're um, constructing both in the original and in the book version, how do you see it as kind of opening up so that it can be uh, more inclusive and that uh, other groups of people who have their own kind of sense of, you know, what their experience, what their histories have been, either in relationship to enslaved people or to people of African descent or not, you know, how, how can it open up so that they can feel, you know, we have something, there's something really in it for us to join the process of doing that? Such an interesting question. And, and I found that critique... I guess in some ways I didn't quite get it Mm -hmm. Um, because this was a story about African slavery 
and intentionally, um, explicitly. So we weren't going to include every other story. You know, no one asked uh, someone who's writing a book about the Civil War, <laughs> why didn't they write about every other American <laughs> war? Or every other... Well, sometimes they do, but not right. usually. It, not. not usually, right? Like, it's, we, we understand that it... I mean, historians have a, an area of expertise, and they That's focus right. on the area. Um, this was a project to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the first Africans being sold into the colony and to look at what is the legacy of that. Now, again, were there, were there areas um, that we could have gone into that we didn't? Uh, could we have talked about class struggle more? Yes. Mm-hmm. Though, I would argue that the legacy of 1619 is that uh, biracial class struggle hasn't been that successful, right? That, that race has been the wedge that has broken apart many, mm-hmm. um, you know, class movements. So I think um, I'm, I'm not about... This tends to be the role that black Americans have always been asked to play, which is we have to speak for everybody. Right, you have to, well, right. And we have to fight for everybody, we have to speak for everybody, um, and black Americans have taken up that role often. If you look at um, the efforts to democratize, they were always about expanding rights for all Americans, understanding that if, if you are on the bottom, anyone above you who loses their rights is going to cause you to lose your rights. Um, but it's okay for us to just focus on mm-hmm. our history and what that means to America. And I would push even further to say, you know, when as Americans... We're always taught to see ourselves um, in stories of white Americans, right? Um, when we talk about the Mayflower or when we talk about the founders and we talk about these great documents, we are all to see ourselves in that story. I'm arguing that all Americans can also see themselves in the black freedom struggle, yeah, that this is a story of Americans, Americans who are black, but Americans. And whether you are indigenous whether you are uh, queer, whether you are white, the fact that black people saw the words of the founding document, which Woody Holton's great new book argues, um, you know, that it was a a black man who turned the Declaration into a liberty document, Mm -hmm. who took that founding stanza that we all used to define the Declaration, which was really, you know, a cataloging of of complaints um, as a liberty document, that that is something every American can take pride in. But it doesn't, we don't have to dilute the story of slavery or the, the story of black Americans to do so. So to me, inclusion means let's make space for all of these stories, um, but n- let's not force one story to be everyone's story. Right. Well, there is this way in which a lot of concepts, uh, America, Americans, I teach often the history of the South, they use the term Southern, Southerners. Yes. They mean white people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's coded that way, right? And so... I would say the white is silent. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it seems that part of what, you know, the project struck me was trying to do was kind of to break that. Yes. And it's not easy to do it's because not. it's so deeply attached. But nonetheless, the challenge is really, really important, exactly, you know, where many um, educators are interested in doing it. I, um, I wanted, uh, you know, the, the volume ends with, with your very moving and disturbing essay uh, called Justice, uh, in which you focus on the enormous wealth gap between 
African Americans and white Americans and white Americans of different uh, social classes. And you argue, I think, as you were a vast social transformation needs to take place and um, that reparations, you know, need to be sort of centrally a part of that. And, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. But since you kind of acknowledge that um, such a transformation demands the adoption of um, bold, I think you used yeah. the term bold national policies, reparations being an example, um, you know, th that the future is going to re require not only social and political struggle, but, but you know, alliances yes. with social groups that, you know, have their own understanding of uh, why we are where we are, and, and groups who, in many cases, have experienced their own forms of exploitation and degradation. So I wonder how you see the 1619 Project in relation... I mean, obviously, it's not f fair for you to be asked to take on the burden of transforming our society, but clearly you see the project as part you know, of a, a sort of a, 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 a process, an ambition, a goal. Uh, so how do you see it in relationship to this larger political? Because I think it is really important to end the book that way. I mean, you are, it's visionary in that sense. I am Thank looking you. forward. I kind of, this is what I think needs to be done. But the question is whether the, um, the uh, kind of logic of the whole volume uh, gives us sort of a sense of, uh, again, I'm not trying to say you have to answer the question of, you know, you're, you're not a, a sort of a, a political organizer per se, you're not a practitioner, you're not, you know, sort of advising or consulting right. with how to do it. But your own sense of, I, it seems to me you recognize the challenges yes. that we face and, um, and how your representation of the relationship of past and present, uh, which is at the center of the book, uh, gives us some way forward in a world in which some kind of coalitional politics are going to be necessary. Yes. Um, I believe that there is a segment of America where no matter what happens, we'll never support happens, it. Right. But I believe that large numbers of Americans uh, of all races simply don't understand enough about this history to understand why something like reparations is necessary. We are taught this history very poorly. Um, we're not taught uh, to think about uh, slavery as an institution of economic exploitation, of Jim Crow being about economic exploitation, of all of the the I call it the dragnet of uh, discriminatory laws and actions and policies that led to the wealth gap. Um, we're also taught very poorly about the civil rights movement and what it could accomplish. Right. Um, and so my work as a journalist is to say there's not enough understanding to get us to where we need to be and to try to reach those for whom they're not opposed. Uh, they're mostly opposed because they don't understand why we would need something like that. And that's because they haven't been taught this history well enough to understand mm -hmm. why we would need a policy of redress for black Americans. Um, so I have to believe that my work is in giving people a helping people, you know, and building on other people's work. But to to get an understanding of what led to the country that we live in today, 
why are black Americans uh, earning, you know, have 10 cents of wealth on the dollar to white Americans? Mm -hmm. Why in every aspect of American life are we and indigenous people, the two groups of people who didn't choose to be a part of America on the bottom? Mm -hmm. And then what then do we owe um, for the conditions that so many fellow Americans live in? I mean, I... I've been doing this work long enough where I, I, I've heard every argument. <laughs> I'll bet you have. <laughs> and that essay uh, is very intentionally speaking to every single argument that I've heard with facts and data. Yeah. Um, you know, I've heard the argument, well, my ancestors were Irish and they suffered. Yes, but that was not chattel or slavery. I wasn't responsible for this, so why right. should I have or, to pay? Or, right, um, you know, my family moved here in... 1910. So what do I have to do with that? And I'm really trying to get us to embrace a collective history. I mean, I say this all the time. If, if you if you take pride in things that, that America has done that your ancestors didn't personally do, then you also have the obligations for things that this nation has done that your ancestors didn't personally do. Um, I have to believe as a journalist, uh, I, again, not being a hopeful person, but um, that if you can inform people that you can change minds, mm-hmm. um, that so much of the reaction is just a really a centuries-long cover-up of, of what slavery and, and Jim Crow really was. And I think a lot about, you know, I, I talk in that essay about the history of the reparations struggle, which, again, most Americans have no idea. So when you hear, well, everyone who is enslaved is dead. Well, people who were enslaved tried to get reparations and couldn't, yes, right? right? Generationally, you've seen you the struggle. You mentioned House, I think. Yes, Callie House, um, uh, who almost no one has ever heard of. Right, and uh, Diane Ramey's book, mm-hmm. right, which is amazing. Um, so we don't, we just, we just don't know enough. And, and you know this as a historian. Most Americans know so but you little know, one about of the, the past. Things that, yeah, um, when, when I started teaching, I had all sorts of grand ideas about how <laughs> my construction of U.S. history was going to influence and change their minds. And I discovered very quickly that that wasn't true, that, you know, they were willing to tell me whatever I wanted to hear or whatever they thought I wanted to hear. Yes. And, you know, what, what I came to recognize is that people's uh, political views change in the process of political struggles mm. that take place, right? I mean, that's how they learn about stuff. Not So... We're in the situation now that, on the one hand, 1619 has been widely adopted in classroom. I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, congratulations, because, you know, at high school and college levels, to some extent middle school levels, you know, educators have, you know, have embraced this and have tried to incorporate this into their classrooms, not in the way it's usually being, right. you know, portrayed. As, uh, um, but we also know, uh, so that, that's really extraordinary, and we've watched over the past year and a half in, uh, an amazing mobilization, not only uh, on the part of um, African Americans, but, you know, many, many allies yes. uh, against the enslavement, as symbols. Uh, I, I never thought I would ever see, you know, a member of the military high command talk about the Confederacy a, right. as traitors. I mean, you know, I said, I've been trying to teach this <laughs> for ages, and no, not even my, you know, students at University of Pennsylvania when I was there like buy this stuff so that's incredible but we've also seen now an incredible pushback yes. and you know the invocation of critical race theory which of course no one knows they have no idea what it is and 
Um, and so I, I guess my question is sort of, and we're going to have to um, wrap it up a little bit, you know, where are we? Um, you know, on the one hand, it's been ex- amazing. One couldn't have uh, imagined when your, the original version came out uh, in the summer of 2019 that, you know, we would see this upsurge and the change in, you know, taking down of monuments and, and yes. other symbols of what had always been married to our past. Yes. Somehow reconciliation was the key to the game. And now we recognize that these people committed treason against <laughs> the United States in defense of slavery. That's, a, you know, and, and I think you're a part of that. I mean, this is what has happened. But now, you know, we're potentially facing this. We are facing a bit of a backlash and one that is discombobulating a lot of potential allies who feel like, well, again, it's see what you've done. You've you've kind of over, overstepped your bounds, and now what's going to happen is that you know they're going to really go after you. I, I just thought, wondered if we could finish with some thoughts you might have about about that. Um, I think that we are in the midst of uh, the struggle that was initiated in 1619, which is who are we going to be as a country? Um, The reason the 400-year argument is important is that we have to understand that you do not um, disembed these tensions, these feelings, um, uh, these divisions in a summer of protest. And that in some ways what we're seeing uh, is the most expected thing in the world, which is uh, intense struggle towards racial progress and then an intense backlash. I hope that what the 1619 Project does is um, offers a bit of a roadmap that we can see what has happened to understand where we are and then figure out, you know, we have a choice to make. And, and, and I think what gets lost in the narrative about 1619 is the 1619 Project is about a choice, that we do have a country founded on these amazing ideals. We have never lived up to them, but we can, and we have the power to make that choice. But you won't live up to them by pretending what has happened hasn't happened and that pretending the impacts of that cannot be seen in our society. Um, So we are in a a scary period right now. Uh, I don't even know what democracy looks like in a couple of years. Um, But I hope that and I do believe that the majority of Americans um, are open to understanding more about our past and that we can we can build a broad multiracial coalition that finally decides, uh, you know, we are going to try to make wrong some of the, try to make right some of the wrongs that we have done. But we'll see. I also learned, you know, it's never good to make predictions. <laughs> so I, right. I try not to. Well, um, we, we'll have to end on that point. But I do hope that um, the book will be widely read. Thank you. Because I it's, I know, I know you do, but... Uh, it both gives us a sense of uh, the scope of the problems and challenges, but I think also at the end uh, offers us some sense of a way forward. And um, I congratulate you on, on its publication. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. C-SPAN has a new podcast, about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. <laughs>